We're going to read this morning from John's Gospel. We're going to think together about the resurrection and think about the significance of it for our own lives. Um, We're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 18, and the words will be on the screen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you had carried him, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Amen. They are giving thanks to God for his word to us today. If you can remember back this far, one of the best jobs in primary school was being asked to do a message for the teacher, wasn't it? Would you like to take a message? And depending on the amount of sellotape that was wrapped around that message, you knew how important it was, like the teacher could get the sack, depending on the amount, you know, how how private is this message? If it doesn't get to its destination, how much trouble will I be in? And let's face it, there were some people in your class who got the carry messages more often than you did. I'm not bitter or anything, but the primary school principal's daughter was in my class. Over seven years, I'm really sure she got to carry a lot more messages than me. She was deemed a more reliable person than me to take a message to the teacher. Who do you get to carry the message? You want somebody with a bit of credibility, don't you? You want someone who you can trust to carry the message. It's a major responsibility, not just in primary school, but throughout life. Who carries 
the message. And on this first Easter morning at the tomb where Jesus had been laid, Mary Magdalene is given the responsibility to carry the news about the risen Jesus to the disciples. It's interesting that Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Is she a plausible witness to the resurrection? Like, if you were going to make this story up, if you were going to concoct a resurrection story, if Jesus hadn't really risen from the dead and you were assembling a cast and you were putting people in positions, who would you cast in the, in the role of the first person to carry the news? You'd want, the, you'd want the reliable witness, wouldn't you? You'd want someone whose word would carry authority and weight. But Mary isn't really in that mold culturally. Is the resurrection plausible? Is the first thing I want us to think about this morning. It's a strange casting decision on God's part to have Mary go from the tomb to tell the news. The report of the resurrection is essential to the credibility of Christianity, to the growth of the church, to the spread of the gospel throughout the world until the end of the age. It's it's crucial to the health and growth of the church, and Mary gets to carry the news. You see, at this point in human history, if you were going to fabricate a resurrection myth, if you were going to get word out about the story that you had dreamed up in your mind, you simply would not select a woman to carry that news. You simply wouldn't select a woman to be the first person to carry that news to others. Tim Keller says this, women's low social status at the time meant that their testimony was not admissible in court. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women. It could have only undermined the credibility of the testimony. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is they really did. It's what actually happened. The resurrection is plausible because if you were making it up, if it was a myth, if you were concocting a story, you wouldn't tell it this way. You wouldn't arrange the parts this way. You wouldn't make it up if you were making it up. You would cast a more reliable group of witnesses to carry this news. Next in line is Peter. Well, yeah, Peter, isn't he the guy who said, Jesus, though none go with you, still I will follow? And then just a few hours later, I don't know him. I don't know him. I, I don't know him. Jesus, I, who, who, what? I, don't, I wasn't with him. I don't look like him. I'm not part of that group. He denied him three times. Peter was double-tongued. On one side of his mouth, he's saying, though none go with you, still I will follow. And a few hours later, he's saying, I don't, I don't even know Jesus. Peter is already proved to be an unreliable kind of person. There's evidence in Scripture of his unreliability, and yet he gets to be a person who carries the news of the cross, of the resurrection. He is key to the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. 
There's biblical record of Peter's unreliability, and yet he gets to be one of the first people to carry the message of the resurrection. You simply wouldn't make it up. There's details in, in John's gospel right at the end here that I find fascinating. That, like, why would you put these details in? Peter and the beloved disciple run to the tomb. We get details that they're running. They run to the tomb, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. You can imagine him posting on Strava, can't you? What kept you, Peter? Did you stop to tie your shoelace? Did you get lost, Peter? He'd be texting in the group chat. Oh, you were a bit slow getting to the tomb, weren't you? Didn't see you for the last half mile. Is everything okay? Because we're told who won the foot race. But we're also told that when the disciple that Jesus loved got to the tomb, he might have been quick to get there, but he wasn't too quick to go in, was he? You can imagine Peter texting back saying, oh, well, you weren't too quick when you got to the door of the tomb, were you? Your courage evaporated. Peter was straight in there. Typical Peter. It's his character, isn't it? Two feet, headlong, straight in. Peter wasn't hanging about at the entrance of the tomb. Even though he arrived second, he went in first. Well, your pace fairly slowed when you got to the entrance of the tomb, didn't it? The other disciple who reached the tomb first also went and he went in after Peter, and he saw, and he believed. There's linen cloth. We're told that there's a face cloth that's been folded, and we're told that Mary is outside. She still hasn't plucked up the courage to go in, even though she was first there and went and got the disciples. This is now her second trip back to the tomb. She's seen that the stone is rolled away. She's seen the other disciples go in, and tears are filling her eyes. She's weeping outside the tomb as she peers in and, and she, she sees the angels. And the angels inquire of her, woman, why are you weeping? It turns out she thinks the body's been stolen. This would be a reasonable thing to think at this time. Grave robbers were commonplace at the time. And so she's thinking to herself, is it not enough? Is it not enough that Jesus has been crucified so publicly with such indignity and horror. And, and now this final twist of the knife, they've stolen the body. What else am I going to have to put up with? Is it not enough to murder him so brutally on the cross and humiliate him so publicly? Now this theft of his body, I don't even get to come and pay my respects. There's no dignity or respect for the deceased body of Jesus. They have taken my Lord away and I do not know where they have laid him. In her grief and in her sadness, she is totally distressed. All that she has witnessed, all that she has seen, even possibly the fear of being associated with Jesus because of what they've done to him. The gut-wrenching disappointment that his life had ended so abruptly and so unfairly and, and now this cruel twist of the knife. Could they not just let him be? Could they not just leave him? Verse 14, we realize everyone becomes a suspect as to who has taken the body. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she looks at Jesus, she supposes him to be the gardener, and she thinks about the gardener, what part have you played in the theft of my Lord? Did you, did you just turn a blind eye while these evil men got on with it? Did you not want the hassle of having to deal with the grave robbers? Did, did they intimidate you into turning a blind eye? Did they pay you? Did you get some financial benefit in order to turn a blind eye? Did you take the body yourself? Everyone becomes a suspect. She's tears in her eyes, so maybe that's why she can't determine that it's actually Jesus and not the gardener in front of her. The sadness that must have overwhelmed her, you couldn't blame her for not seeing straight or, or thinking straight. Or perhaps like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus supernaturally prevents her from understanding who he is and comprehending who he is. We're not told. We're just told that she underestimates him. She supposes that he is a gardener. What about you? What's your estimate of Jesus this morning? Who do you perceive him to be in your present distress? What place does he have in your life in the middle of the pain and anguish that you're experiencing right now? Do you have a high view of Jesus or do you think he's just the gardener? Have you dismissed him from view? Have the tears of your present experience blinded you to the reality that the risen Lord is present with us this morning in your life and mine? Grief. Frustration, anxiety, an abusive relationship, financial burden, a joyless working environment, the betrayal of a friend, whatever it is, are you blinded to the fact that there is a risen Lord Jesus present in your life and mine? Do you find the plausibility of the resurrection to be something that is questionable? Because if Jesus is alive, then this couldn't be the case. Mary's looking at an empty tomb. She's remembering what's happened a few days before. And she thinks, well, he must be the gardener. It couldn't be Jesus. I want you to know this morning that the resurrection is plausible because no one would make it up this way. If his enemies had stolen the body, and Peter and the other disciples started going about saying, Jesus is alive, they'll say, no, he's not. Here's, here's the corpse. If the disciples had stolen the body, would they really be prepared to die for a lie? Would they really be prepared to spread the gospel throughout the world and suffer so much in order to perpetuate a lie that they had concocted in a bizarre way? I want you to investigate the plausibility of the resurrection. You wouldn't make it up. I want you not only to investigate the plausibility of the resurrection. It's not just plausible this morning, it's personal. The resurrection is personal. Jesus says, Mary. And everything changes. Her reply, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
what, what's playing out here is the truth that Jesus previously explained in John chapter 10 when he says, I, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. They, they don't follow the voice of a thief. In fact, they, they flee from the voice of a thief. I know my own sheep. I call them by name and they follow me. Jesus says, Mary. And she recognizes his voice. This is really powerful for us as a church as we think about the kind of questions that we need to think about going forward. I think, what will the church be like after COVID? What will the church be like in 2022 or 2023? How, how can we evangelize? Listen, Jesus still knows his own sheep by name, no matter what date we're living in, no matter what postcode we're living in, Jesus knows his own sheep by name. If his word goes forth, people will respond to it. His own sheep will hear his voice. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary. Resurrection is personal. Jesus knows your name. You thought about that recently? Jesus knows your name. He's not too busy. He's not preoccupied with COVID. He's not got a lot of emails to reply to and overlooking you. You're not one of a many contacts on his list. He knows your name. He calls his sheep by name. You are known this morning and resurrection power is yours because Jesus knows you. And he orders Mary not to hold on to him. Seems strange command, doesn't it? <clears throat> Let go, you know, don't hold on to me, don't grasp me. It's a particularly strange command when you think of what he says to Thomas just a few verses later. <laughs> Touch me. I see my hands on my side, put your hands. So like, if you're Mary, you're thinking, well, how come Thomas gets to do that and I don't? Why does Thomas get to touch you and I have to let go? Don't touch, don't touch. You can touch, right? Hang on, Jesus, what's happening here? Why can Mary be instructed by Jesus to let go when Thomas is told hands on? Is Jesus a hypocrite? Not at all, not at all. What Jesus is doing here is really consistent and it's personal. He wants Mary to understand that he's not some kind of lucky charm. He's not some localized deity. He's not a mascot that can be held onto for this little private moment that Mary has with Jesus. He wants, he wants Mary to go and tell the disciples because the word needs to get out to everyone that Jesus is alive. Mary needs her faith strengthened that there is power available to her and the, and the witness and the impact of the resurrection will be far more reaching than what's happening in this little moment right now. Let go, go and tell the disciples. And Thomas is told to touch because he's doubting that the resurrection actually happened. So Jesus interacts with him personally. Mary needs to know that this is a time for celebration, not clinging on, holding on just for this little, you know, superstitious moment that I've got a clutch hold of Jesus. This is good news for the whole world. Don't hang on to me. I'm not going to disappear. I'm risen and I will remain risen bodily in all eternity. It's lasting. Long beyond the moment of this conversation, Mary, you will feel the impact of the resurrection. You will know the benefit of it in eternity. What Mary and Thomas have in common is that they have a small view of Jesus. Thomas could be tempted to think that Jesus just rise spiritually. Is there like a spiritual resurrection, like the presence of Jesus? No, it's his actual body. And so Jesus wants to strengthen Mary's faith. 
go. He wants to strengthen Thomas's faith. Touch. He wants to strengthen your faith in a personal, particular way. I read recently that he even, even a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news to me when I read it. Even a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. Thomas had to touch him to be reassured in his doubts. Mary had to go to be reassured in her doubts. The resurrection is personal. Even weak faith lays hold of a strong Christ. The resurrection is personal. It's plausible. It happened. It's real. Investigate it. It stands up to criticism. It's plausible and personal. You'll know that C.S. Lewis uh, from here in, in Northern Ireland wrote a series of children's stories in which a, a lion represents the person of Jesus Christ. And in one of the stories he tells, a little girl called Jill bursts into a forest. She's absolutely dying of thirst, and there's a stream not far from where she's standing, but she doesn't rush towards it. And the reason she doesn't rush towards it is because there's a lion quite close to the stream. And she's really thirsty, but there's a lion there resting in the sunlight. And the voice comes from the lion saying, are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then Drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away a while so I can drink, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without even noticing, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, Kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're dying of thirst, there is no other stream. You're dying for a world without suffering. You're dying for a world without pain. You're dying for a world without division. You're dying for a world in which all the broken things are made new. Whatever your particular and personal pain is this morning, there is no other stream, only Jesus. Like Jesus asked Mary, whom are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Who, who do you think is going to put right? Who 
He's going to deal with the guilt that you feel because of the way you've conducted your own life. He's going to deal with your sin. Who's going to pronounce you forgiven and you will believe them? Come to Jesus and receive personal forgiveness for your particular sin. Come to Jesus and lay down your life. Give him your fear. Give him your anxiety. Give him your sadness. Give him your doubt. The resurrection isn't just plausible. It's personal. It's for you and me. He's our only hope in life and death. There is no other stream that will satisfy your longing for forgiveness. There is no other stream that will satisfy your hope for life eternal. There is no other stream that will satisfy your longing for a world without sadness and sickness and tears. Jesus rose bodily. Death is not the end for Jesus, and death is not the end for all who trust in him. If you're united with Christ in faith, then you too will rise bodily, physically. It's, a, it's his identity. I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus conquered death, and if we trust in him, we too will conquer death. Even weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. If you are weak in faith this morning, that's okay. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong, and he is our only hope in life and in death. May you know the power of the resurrection in your life this morning. May you know the power of the resurrection in your life in the week ahead. There is no other stream. The resurrection is not only plausible, it's personal. May you know the reality of it in your life. Let's take a moment to pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you our thanks that you did not withhold your son, your only son, but you sent him into the world. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. We come to you in our weakness, believing you are strong. We come to you in our fear, believing that you are the one who comforts all our fears. We come to you in our despair, believing that you are our hope in life and in death. And we worship you. Amen.